The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Our scripture reading for today is from Isaiah 42, verses 1 through 9. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I've put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has, till he, he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Karen. Well, um, this summer, I don't know if your summers are like this, but I feel as though most of my summers have a bit of a theme song. And uh, every now and then, I don't know if you realize that or think about that when you're kind of at a pool, at a beach, or wherever your kind of summer leads you, but it kind of leads me often when I, um, you know, taking on the summer and I'm kind of sitting with my kids either at a pool or in driving around, there's kind of a song that usually gets played. You know, I remember it was Justin Timberlake's, you know, song from Trolls that was played over and over and over again. You know, like songs like that, they kind of get stuck in your head and they kind of define your moments. Um, there, you know, we all have those songs, you know, we all have music, especially living in Music City, their music is all around us and we have the opportunity to kind of have music define a lot of us as a city. You know, when people say, hey, where are you from? You say Nashville, like, oh, okay. Um, you know, but one of the things that you take it a step further, and many of us would probably uh, account for, is, is the songs that define your history. Not just a moment in time, but the songs in your life, whether it's uh, a wedding song, uh, whether it's uh, a breakup song, uh, whether it's a, a song from high school or a band. I had all these friends of mine talking about uh, it's so funny, like, where I am in generationally, uh, some of my friends below and above me talking about, like, Fish, the band Fish, they're like, oh, we're on the Fish, or we're, we're into the panic, widespread panic. I'm like, dude, I'm, I must have missed that one. Like, I was Dave Matthews, I was, you know, like, there are certain bands and people that kind of fit that. But even further than that, if you, if you look at this, and you've probably seen this on TV, that, that music defines history. There, there are songs, and if you really listen to current songs, they, they try and fit into an era that defined the era. 
I mean, this goes so far back. Uh, I, I even found an uh, article recently, it was talked from History Now, that was talking about this, that popular music is the soundtrack to much of our history. So what this was talking about. Even when the Revolutionary War soldiers went off, they did so with the tune of Yankee Doodle, right? Abolitionist songs sung by the Hutchison family singers and, and so on and so forth. Even the Depression era, optimists as well as cynics could be heard singing Happy Days Are Here Again. You know, they're songs that define moments in history. So if you pull it out, you pull out a band, you pull out a person. There's even a, a new movie out um, uh, called Yesterday, where basically, I haven't seen it, so I can't ruin it for you, but the premise is, the preview is essentially that the be- there's some event, and this, the Beatles songs were never played, and this guy somehow is the only one that remembers all the songs, starts playing them, and gets all the credit for it, <laughs> and it defined, the Beatles defined an era, right? We're looking at a passage, and you just read it, it's first of four songs. They're called the Servant Songs. And they were songs that defined an era. They weren't just songs of a moment in time for people reading them. They actually defined history. And, and, and when the people of Israel would take up Isaiah, and they would take it up over and over, and, and if you notice, this passage doesn't just speak to the people of Israel, it speaks to the whole earth. It actually would be a song, this is the first of four servant songs that would define the course of history. Isaiah is a long book, 66 chapters. If it's easy for you, the whole Bible is 66 books, and Isaiah can almost be divided just like that, 39 and, and, and 27. And this is kind of on the back half of Isaiah. It's beginning to start talking about, how's God going to resolve this? The, everything is a mess. Assyria has come, and they are about to take over. They're already exiles. And the punishment and judgment against those who said they were followers of God is coming because there's all this idol worship. Even leading up to this, chapter 41, is all about the relationship that the people have to idols. And what is God's song of remedy? Why in the world, first of all, would he put it in a song? He put it in a song because don't we remember history, space, time, our emotions, everything wrapped up when we hear a song. And God would not just play one, he would play four. And this being the first to set the course of all of them, I am going to send my servant to remove you from all of those things. He could have said anything, but he says, I'm gonna send a servant. So the thing I want us to look at in this passage, we could, man, we could spend days in this, is I want us to look at the contrast between the servant and the idols, and I want us to look at the servant himself and his character. So the contrast and the character of this servant. If you look at the the contrast here is right out of the gate, and if you see verse one, it says, behold my servant. God is literally saying, behold, I want to present to you my servant. And the reason he's doing that is because they're asking, what's going to happen? How does this change? And he says, here is the remedy. Here's how it's going to change. Because right before this, it was saying, well, we, we just live in idolatry. We just live serving these things. It was, behold, here are the things that you worship. And, and what Isaiah is great for is to actually expose the normalcy of the culture in that day, of what they worshiped. And this is how it applies so quickly to us, is what would you think God's remedy would be for us in our culture? 
I mean, people today are up in arms, especially those who would, be, uh, would consider themselves followers of Christ, about how do we change things? How do we keep the church? How do we follow God? How do we do these things? And, and, and it's so easy. The people of God were, were not just off. They were off because of things called Id- idols in their life. Now, when we say idolatry, I've said it a number of times, I don't know what comes in your mind. You may think of a little wooden thing. You may think of uh, some other thing in your life. But when idolatry is spoken of here, it's spoken of in terms of anything that is of creation or anything that's good made an ultimate thing. Tim Keller, I can't, I can't not preach on this. He literally wrote a book on this. So if I, so for me to not quote him, he's a pastor in New York City. Uh, he's written some wonderful things on this. Articles, magazines that are even a part of like, like magazine articles that have been written in Vanity Fair and other things that are uh, widely uh, read. But he, he describes it in two ways. And an idol does two things. An idol deceives and also causes us to be in slavery. So it deceives. First of all, that we think we're living rightly, but it can really just deceive us. It's almost like a pickpocket. I was talking to somebody recently about traveling through Europe. I think maybe it was Brett or someone else, and I remember being in uh, Florence, Italy, and, uh, <clears throat> and you know, you have to wear certain, um, you can't wear, you know, you, you don't put your wallet outside of your pockets because, man, people pickpocket you like that. I remember I thought I was good. I was actually, I'd woken up in the morning, I was taking a shower, I get out, I come back to my stuff, and my friend who is with me catches a guy who's literally sifting through my things right there in front of him. And so I have this, he, we were talking about it, I had uh, breakfast with him a couple weeks ago when I was in Dallas, <laughs> and he said, I can't believe, you, you know, here I catch this guy and I'm giving him the one-two, and then you come out and you're like, then you try and share the gospel with the guy. And I'm like, well... Yeah, I kind of like, whatever. Um, but the gospel, here, give me my stuff. Um, but it was interesting. That's what, it, that's what the idol does. It deceives. It's a pickpocket. It makes you think that you're actually doing something good when it starts to take from you. And that's what idols do. They're not things that are all bad. They're actually things that are usually really good that we make equal or greater than God. And that's how they ensnare us. That's how they enslave us. This is, what, this is what Tim Keller says in his book. He says, whatever we worship, we will serve. For worship and service are always inextricably bound together. We are covenantal beings. That means we have relationships. We enter into a covenant service with whatever most captures our imagination and our heart. It ensnares us. So every human personality, community, thought form, and culture will be based on some ultimate concern or ultimate allegiance, either to God or some God substitute. There's a God substitute. That's what it does. And here's how it's tricky. It's tricky because essentially what an idol does in contrast, and this is why God says, behold my servant. Why a servant? Why not just say, Behold my conqueror. Behold the one that's going to just strip it all away. A servant does something different. A servant doesn't put the cost on you. They take it away from you. You see, that's what an idol does. What we don't realize is idols are those things that we love that are good. It could be our children. It could be having a spouse. It could be a job. It could be a, a country. It could be a song. It could be a a dream, a goal, whatever it is. It could be a city. 
It could be a meal. It could be a profession. We can put anything in that position, and, and what we do is we begin to feed it. We begin to play into the idea that it can give me love. It can give me what I need if I continue to give to it. But what does it do? It ultimately costs us. It takes and takes and takes. What a servant does, why does he say, behold, my servant? Because the servant, instead of taking, gives. The servant doesn't cost us. The servant takes on the cost. And that's how you can tell what you really worship. Are the things that you worship that may be great things costing you so much that you are willing to give what you can because you think it will give back what you really want, the love that you need? It's interesting. We studied the uh, minor prophets in our uh, men's uh, Bible study. And if you're unfamiliar with the Bible, and maybe even if you're, you're familiar, Isaiah is one of many prophets, called a major prophet, they're minor prophets, not because they're important, because of the length. Isaiah's longer, and the minor prophets are a lot shorter. And one of the, the tenets of the prophets is they were a lot like lawyers. So essentially, this whole book is set up almost like a courtroom scene. And here's what's interesting about it. When they bring in the witnesses, the witnesses against our um, idolatry or the people of God's idolatry or the earth's idolatry, you wouldn't guess who it was. It's the actual creation itself. See, what God does in the prof- prophetic books is he sets it up to say, here's my law, here's how the world is supposed to be, here's how you've broken it, here's how you're not living in it correctly, and yet he talks about idolatry as the way and the form of taking what would be good, even his law itself, and making it the greatest thing and serving it rather than God himself, rather than knowing that he is the one. That's the contrast. Look, it is the witness to our idolatry. Isn't it over and over the thing that when you give to creation, try and give at least to creation what you think it will give to you, anything in all creation, it's all creation, right? Anytime you exchange the creator and creation, it does that. Notice verse 5 says this, Thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it. So he sets himself apart. He says, and and the language here actually is one, and and the tone of it in Hebrew is actually really uh, volatile against idolatry. He's saying, here's, here's how I'm different. And then he even says, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. So he doesn't just set up creation, he keeps it going. He's saying, I'm distinct in multiple ways. I don't just give you creation and then you mess it. I'm the one who keeps creation going and I'm the one that's gonna have creation come back on you and say, you can't use me in this way. That's why he puts it there. I was just talking to uh, Bing Davis, who come, who's a part of our service, is great. We're talking about churches, and and a couple weeks ago, I I think I mentioned this to you, I was in uh, General Assembly in Dallas, and that's where the collection of, uh, it was work work week, and it was essentially all all the collection of churches in our denomination coming together to talk about things and working through stuff. It was so interesting, uh, some of my friends are are, uh, from campus ministry days are now doing what I'm doing in uh, resort type areas. And one of the things that's interesting about planting churches, we were just talking about this, right? Uh, Putting a church or planting a church in an area that's a destination place, it makes it very difficult because people who come to the church 
or come to that city or that location are typically going to there not for church but for the location. In other words, that resort, that area, that city, that place is their heaven. It is their place of worship. And they said it's incredibly difficult to put a place of worship that diverts people to what, where we actually enjoy creation the most through worship of God rather than try, and trying to take them away from those places, right? Because we go to those places, we love those places. But imagine thinking about what we actually do with those. <laughs> it's incredibly hard, they say, to pl- put churches there, to plant churches in areas, to divert people's attention away from what they really worship. And isn't that what we want? We want something that's going to not feel like when we come in. And we feel this way. I mean, man, I was singing that song uh, with you, and I was just, man, tears in my eyes about my own heart. About do, do, we, do we expect coming in here to be more work than rest? And going out there to those places, those idols, those things that could be so wonderful. I mean, for, I have mine. I just went to one of mine, the beach. And I can so easily look at that to solve things in my heart instead of just enjoying it and taking it in and keeping it. And then it goes away like that, right? It can be so easy to take a vacation, a, a, a time away, a meal, a thing, and make it more than what it is because we want it to solve what it can't. Because it, 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 it promotes success and it can't give it. Look, the thing I love about this passage is that God doesn't just say, here's your idolatry. He sets up the contrast of what idols do to his servant. And he paints the portrait and character of his servant. He says, I don't want you to camp out on you just living in idolatry. I want you to camp out on the character of the one I'm sending to redeem this. He says, behold, my servant, whom I uphold. In other words, his language from the start says, here's what's different about the servant than anything else you've encountered. He says uphold, even the word uphold in Hebrew means to grab, to seize. It's, it's, in other words, God is showing the people before that, you want to seize something? Seize my servant. Here's who I seize. Here's who I grab hold of, to grip and not let go. That's what it means. And then he moves from there to to language that, I don't know about you, but I'm going to unpack for a minute. It's it's fascinating to read. It says in verse 1, my chosen in whom my soul delights. God himself says my soul delights in my servant. That he's delighted in. Rather than producing deception, there's delight from this servant. Think about this. The word delight is a word that we, we look at things, and we, can, we could unpack a million different ways of describing this, but something that you look at that you hope that, will, that you delight in, that you put joy into, that it produces this fantastical love for. And it, it actually is the God looking at this chosen servant, this one, this individual, and saying, you, I delight, I put all my delight 
in. My soul, that, as if God has a soul. He says, my soul delights in you. Think about the song of God trying to explain to us, those who can't hear it. Doesn't a song do that often? It can kind of help us understand or navigate places and emotions that we can't grasp because just regular sentences don't do the trick. And God says, my soul delights. And it comes from this moment. It's reflected in Matthew chapter 3 when in the New Testament when Jesus is actually kind of presented to the people and he goes to this body of water to be baptized. And when he does, it's kind of this inauguration of his ministry. This voice from heaven says, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. <clears throat> and what's so incredible about that is to think about the need, the desire, the want for us to have delight of people. Like that God would actually have delight. I think often we don't think, we, we need to stop for a moment and reflect on this. When we come in, and, and, and I think Bing tried to draw us there too, is, is during our confession time, to actually know that God delights in us. That's so hard for us to grasp. It's hard for us to grasp that anyone would delight in us sometimes. A great New York Times article called The Fame Motive and behind this article said this, to be noticed, to be wanted, to be loved, to walk into a place and have others care about what you're doing, even what you had for lunch that day. That's what people want, in my opinion, said a, a specific <clears throat> uh, 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 article writer. It's strange and twisted because when that afternoon does come, the irony is you want more privacy after you have people looking at you. <laughs> There's this looking at you and this, this culture of wanting fame, wanting to be loved, wanting to be known, and yet to go back into hiding over and over and over. One says, a psychologist in the same article says this, given this awareness of our mortality, said Jeffrey Greenberg, a psychologist at the University of Arizona, to function securely, we need to feel somehow protected from this existential predicament. To feel like we're more than just material animals, fated only to uh, um, uh, obliteration upon death. We accomplish that by trying <clears throat> to view ourselves as enduringly valuable. Listen to that. To try and view ourselves as enduringly valuable, contributors to a meaningful world, and the more others validate our value, the more special and therefore secure we can feel. But the odds of achieving some measure of notoriety, some sort of high fame of sorts at all or small, are so remote that it's no surprise when unrealized ambition curdles into psychological struggle. Such a fascinating thing to think about this because what God is doing in this passage is trying to call them out with this one. And notice in verse two here, he says, he will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it, it heard in the streets. That the difference between the servant and the delight he has means he doesn't have to shout his voice and make himself known. He's not aggressive. <laughs> in other words, his voice, even the language of this uh, cry aloud is saying that he's trying to make it. He's trying to make himself, assert himself so people see him, that, that he doesn't do that at all. There's such a delight that the father has in this servant, that God has in his servant, that he doesn't have to promote himself ever. Not a post, not an aggressive word. 
even when he's misunderstood, he doesn't come back defensively. Can you imagine being delighted in so much that the fear of obliteration of our value that we even heard about with our, that undercurrent of fame in our hearts was calmed. At every moment, at every turn, every point that you are delighted in. I have to tell you, going back to Dallas was really hard for me. I haven't talked about this much with a couple people. It was an odd experience for me to go back to General Assembly, not just because it was one thing to hold the work aspect of it, but Dallas is my hometown. And for some reason, God in his infinite wisdom put me in the position of seeing nearly, and this is not an overstatement, nearly every person in my history from childhood to present. And it was unnerving. Because the portrait that I began to see about myself was that where am I seeking affirmation? Where am I seeking delight? I mean, I'd see a building and it would remind me of my fault. I had a person tell me <laughs> one moment how much I had messed, uh, how, how much they didn't like me. Uh, I had, but on that side, and then I had other side of joy of people saying, oh, it's so good to see you in hugs. And to hold both was so bizarre for me. Because I thought, I can't hold this. How do I hold this, this joy and pain all at once? This servant did it. And never doubted God's delight once. That's the character of this servant. He didn't have to cry his voice aloud like I've felt like I've had to do so much in my own life. And I'm sure you have too. He didn't have to assert himself. And he says he was a bruised reed and would not break. Think about that for a minute. If you've been to a lake or, or somewhere around here that has reeds like this, that bend, they kind of have that bend in them. And the mentality here that we've kind of used before in our culture is that bend don't break, you know, kind of mentality. But the point of this is to say that he was a bruised reed, he would not break, and a, fair, a faintly burning wick, he, he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. Here's the point, that this servant suffers and is still successful in every way. There is no way that he is not successful. Tom Petty sang this song, right? <laughs> I won't back down. I won't back down, right? You can stand me up at the gates of hell, but I won't back down. That song, that probably all of us kind of ring when we hear that. It's a great song. I love that song. It's a great song. But it can so define our, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to meet suffering. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to beat it. And when we talk about the bend, don't break mentality, it's like, okay, I'll take as much as I can, but I'll just endure it. I'll endure it. Here's the difference between the servant and us. The servant doesn't just endure. He takes suffering all the way to the end until he wears suffering out. Instead of him standing up at the gates of hell, I'll stand up there, he wore the gates of hell out trying to, as the gates of hell and suffering tried to get him. This is what it's saying, that he was a bruised reed. He came into every single instance and subjected himself to every single part of the pain of trying to fulfill what he needed to for us, for us to be in this relationship with, with God. And he did so not by enduring it, but by taking suffering and saying, 
I'm going to wear you out. I'm going to take you to the end. I'm going to stand up at the gates of hell and they will shudder at me. And yet he never had to make his voice known. What shows us the difference between the idols that we worship and the glory of this servant, the character of one who actually is different, is the fact that an idol is going to wear you out. An idol will always ask more of you, but this servant, you know what he does? He takes every bit of the cost on so that you find rest and peace in him. Those moments when you come here in the morning or you think about church or God, maybe you're here this morning, maybe you're somebody who's kind of coming back into the fray of the church or making known those questions again, maybe you wrestle with shame and guilt of your relationship to God or even just your relationships to others or life. What this servant does is go to the end of that for you to experience every bit of that and yet not break. It means that he is not just bruised, Reed. It means he will never falter. He is successful. He has brought it out. Verse 4, he will never grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice and in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. You know what it's saying? that to the ends of the earth, the coastlands were the end, and that justice, we think of justice as like, he brings the hammer down. No, no, no. Here's justice. Justice is this table. Actually, the word for justice is so complicated in, that, in Isaiah that there are myriad of translations, but what they do is they try and bring them together to say this. We think of justice as kind of bringing about rights, like we need to make things every, everything right. Actually, the language is fulfillment. What it's saying is he will not grow faint or discouraged till he has established the fulfillment of all of God's law on the earth. Even the idolatry of us trying to say, I will make my life better before God so I can make it. Every single corner, every single place where everyone was discouraged and everyone faltered and everyone did break, and has. He has not. And he has fulfilled it. That's what this table is. To come to this table means that you actually acknowledge the fact that you can't do this. You don't want to make an idol out of this table either. This coming to this table doesn't make you anything. Coming to this table means you're in a relationship with the servant himself. No idol in your life, nothing else in all of creation that you can worship has ever done this for you. None. Only the servant. And let that drive you to what you really worship and drive you back to the one who's not standing over you like a conqueror saying, hey, will you get it together? I've won this. But a servant who calls you back, who has fulfilled every point of the law, who's gone to the gates of hell itself and the gates shudder. And yet he looks at you and says, come, taste, see that I am good and that you are loved. Let's stand together and as we do, we're gonna read a...